1689 Saturday, we're rolling with the 1689 thing, and um, I uh, wanted to, in this um, episode, just quickly uh, move through something that I started developing on the last um, 1689 Saturday, so a week ago, um, concerning um, this Jeremiah uh, linchpin idea. So if you haven't been tracking with that, what I've been talking about is just um, the the really the difference between uh, covenantal infant Baptists and covenantal Reformed Baptists, um, and you know uh, we've we've kind of touched on a whole bunch of subjects, but I just wanted to focus in a little bit on, I suppose in in some ways what you might call the essential um, of you know what would make a Baptist a Baptist uh, as opposed to um, just his uh, brothers in the Reformed camp. Um, speaking now specifically of of really the Reformed community. Uh, you get a whole bunch of people in um, the Baptist camp who are just honestly all over the map in terms of the- theology and uh, uh, just only very nominally united by the name Baptist. I, I kind of even reject that as a, a point of, of unity um, because the way they get to baptism is so different and it's just it's almost pointless. So I've, you know, I just kind of jokingly refer to myself as a Baptisterian because we arrive at Baptist thinking essentially out of Presbyterian thought. And so, um, you know, the 1689 Confession, which is the one I hold to, is essentially a communication of that free reality. Um, it's a it's a word-for-word copy of the Westminster. It's to show that uh, the evolution of the Reformed Baptists, so to speak, is, um, is not the same as the story of the Baptists who are all over the map in Arminianism and Dispensationalism and whatever else-ism. Uh, and yet only united in the fact that they dunk like donuts. Um, you know what I mean? It's just a crazy concept to, you know, it's, it's, there are more important things to unite around is what I'm saying. And um, I'd much prefer to see the, the concept of baptism put at, at a secondary issue uh, than to, you know, put some more important doctrines like the covenant and Calvinism as a secondary issue. Uh, and then unite around baptism. I don't know. So I've never bought into that. I'm not a Baptist Union guy. I'm actually, in that sense, not a Baptist Baptist at all. Um, but I am a Baptist because I believe it's 100% correct and uh, we should not be sprinkling our babies, people. All right. Now, uh, what we uh, did was just to hone in on that um, that discussion, I said, well, let's focus in on, on what it is that, cha- that tweaks the covenant theology of a Reformed Baptist. Uh, it makes it different essentially, to that of his Presbyterian brother or Reformed brother, where, you know, we're just kind of landing on different things. Um, Ultimately, the Baptist is saying, listen, we have a matter of eschatology in view. I think, uh, as I pointed out uh, a few weeks back, uh, most Presbyterians that have looked into it are rightly engaging with that subject. They're wrongly moving in crazy directions on that, in that uh, we're not saying as Baptists that we're just... um, you know, just gone crazy Gnostic and we don't care about the body and don't care about anything corporate and the church. And, you know, it's all about that we think we're in heaven and therefore everyone must be baptized. You know, um, th- that's that's just a straw man. No one really believes that anyway. Uh, what, we, what we do believe, though, is that there is something about what Jeremiah prophesied in the New Covenant and that something 
or a lot of things in the New Covenant itself, as we see in the New Testament, that bears out what Jeremiah was saying in terms of its theology. That means that the story has progressed somewhat, that the revelation of the gospel has moved from this free uh, seed, shadow form all the way in the beginning through the various covenants to its great big fulfillment in the New Covenant where you have this full expression of the the fulfillment of the types and shadows, and therefore, the, as the author of Hebrews said, the types and shadows must go. Um, and we're, we're left with the, the substance. That doesn't mean we're in heaven and we're without bodies and whatever. It just means that we certainly, uh, whatever, whatever foreshadowing was in existence now turns into a foretasting of that reality. Uh, there's nothing left to shadow. It's now come, and we're just waiting for its consummated state. Uh, this is all very, very important with Jeremiah, and I did kind of mention this last time, but I, do, I, I just wanted to develop it a little bit more because um, you, uh, it's easy to talk about this stuff um, when, uh, you know, in abstract terms, but I know that it sometimes it's helpful just to get down and look at some texts. Um, so uh, I'm going to leave you to read Jeremiah 31, 31 and following about, about the new covenant. Um, very clear as to what's happening over there. Jeremiah saying, listen, it's not going to be like the old covenant. It's going to be a new covenant. It's not going to be breakable. It's going to be this thing that where everyone in it is regenerate. So, I mean, that's uh, that I think is very clear. What on earth would a Presbyterian say about that or a reformed Peter Baptist? Well, um, I think the, you, uh, one of the articles, I they said a whole bunch of different things. All, most of the arguments are, <clears throat> so lame, it's hardly even worth addressing. So I'm not going to go there. But there is one, um, and when I mean lame, I mean like, oh boy, you got you got some crazies out there. Like, uh, no, actually, new doesn't mean uh, new; it means renewed, and it's a renewed old covenant. And um, uh, no, uh, there is another one out there that no, well, you know, uh, it's just saying that the the corporate uh, new covenant uh, church, like corporate national Israel. Uh, couldn't corporately break the corporate covenant, um, but individually, you know, you could still break it, which essentially reduces what Jeremiah is saying to absolute nothing. Um, so I don't think that works. Um, there is, oh, this, you know, of that nature, there, there's that kind of stuff. Um, one very, very sophisticated, awesome argument, though, that I think is, I, I think it's very, very uh, winsome. It's, um, um, what is the word I'm looking for? Very compelling, uh, very, very um, understanding of the issue. And uh, I think one of the best representations of that argument is written. Um, I think if you Google Richard Pratt, P-R-A-T-T, and uh, if you just write Jeremiah 31, Baptist, something like that, uh, you'll pretty soon see an article pop up there on Third Millennium Ministries, a reformed website, um, that, that details a beautiful, beautiful um uh, presentation of the the view that I find compelling in the Presbyterian argument, and uh, in some sense I find it compelling. In some sense I find it even more compelling to the Baptist position. And I'll explain what I'm saying, just to summarize what Pratt uh, is arguing. Um, he's saying, look, Jeremiah 31 is great, except, uh, and we obviously it's communicating a total difference there. We're seeing a discontinuity, a change, a progression. So the Baptists are right in that sense. Um, what they're wrong in is their over-realized eschatology in that they, they say that, um, you know, that's uh, talking about now when actually that's talking about heaven. Now, 
he backs it up and does a whole lot of things. And I actually think he makes a few mistakes in, 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 in what he's saying there. Like, I don't actually think it is talking about heaven. But for the sake, let me just try a bit of a thought experiment with you. And I'll just show you why the argument sort of shoots itself in the foot by doing this. Um, the, um, the issue as he goes there is that even if you, let's just say we allow him to be totally correct, in what he's arguing for. And he's not doing it badly. So let's, he could be, maybe, you know, I'd say about 90% sure that I'm right and he's wrong. But let's say I'm wrong. And let's say he's right. Then uh, what we have is, is Jeremiah's new covenant, not talking about now, but talking about heaven, the consummated state. Jesus came to inaugurate the new covenant. Everyone agrees that there are three phases in the kingdom, inauguration, commencement, and consummation. And uh, then what he's arguing is that we have we have mistaken uh, the consummated state that Jeremiah is seeing in a sense of prophetic foreshortening there. He's seeing a whole big mountain ranges of stuff in the future. He's not necessarily delineating the inauguration, commencement, consummation uh, of the kingdom. He's just going, there it is. I can see it. And um, it's our job now to go, okay, he was talking about the consummation, not the inauguration or the commencement. Now, uh, I, you know, again, I think it's a plausible argument. I believe f- prophetic foreshortening is uh, certainly correct. Uh, it's a necessary concept. The prophets didn't see everything in exact clarity. They saw it like a mount- mountain range, and, the f- and only when you get closer, you see that actually, oh, there are a whole bunch of mountain ranges, and it just looked like one big one. And uh, that's that's kind of exactly how it works with prophecy. Um, so that's cool. I got no problem with that. Um, and. You know, I mean, look, it, it's certainly true that in the new uh, in heaven, everyone's going to know the Lord. You know, no quibble there, and everyone's going to have the law written on their hearts, so no one will have to teach his neighbor. So, in that sense, you know, there's no there's no argument. Um, and like I said, the only thing I would want to push back on is actually no, you know, there is a, a very real sense in which what he's describing there could talk about the inauguration, not the not merely the consummation. But let's just give that away, and I want to show you that even if I give that away, I still get my point. This is what I mean. Um, although it's true that our eschatology must include three phases, inauguration, commencement, consummation, it's also true that the New Testament has an eschatology of the already not yet. Um, we, we beat this drum a lot in the idea of two-age sojourning. It's the overlap of the ages, the Christian life. We've got one foot in this earth and one foot in heaven because the age to come has crashed in to this age, and that has happened already, but not yet. It's already happened when, you know, Pentecost happened and, and Christ came and, you know, just that event. And um, it's now, uh, you know, as Peter himself said, this is the beginning of the end kind of thing. This was the prophecy of Joel. This is now it's on. And uh, now we're walking in this tension until, and it's true, the, the kingdom is now inaugurated. It's consummating. Uh, at least uh, it's commencing, and it will consummate when Jesus comes again. Uh, but that doesn't change the fact that uh, we have certain already not yet realities taking place. One of my favorite texts to go to in that regard is, um, uh, the, you know, Hebrews 12, where where the author says, listen, guys, stop going back to Jewish worship on Saturdays. Those are the shadows. You're not going to Mount Zion, the earthly thing. You're coming to um, heavenly Jerusalem. And then he goes on to describe the worship of the church in uh, distinctively eschatological terms 
making you otherwise feel like, hey, Jer- why is he talking about heaven all of a sudden? Well, he is talking about heaven. That's the whole point. He's talking about heaven that has crashed into this earth in part already, though not yet fully. And so um, with that in mind, um, uh, let me just throw out a few texts just to show you the Bible's own system here, because this is kind of basic stuff, but if you've never looked at it, it's key to um, understand. Um, so, for example, I mean, you've got this all over the place. We don't even have time to look at this, but um, Matthew twelve thirty-two, Jesus, uh, he says, And whoever shall speak a work, word against the Son of Man, it shall be, be forgiven him. But whoever shall speak against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him, either in this age or the age to come. Now, leaving aside the what that text means and everything, uh, it's a talk on its own. Um, just look at the the two-age distinction. Uh, Jesus divides essentially all of time into this age and the age to come. It's the way the Bible does it. It's the way that they think about it. Um, whoever blasphemes the Spirit, Mark 3, 29, um, uh, never has forgiveness but is uh, guilty of an eternal sin. It's a parallel text. It shows us that the age to come is eternity, right? Um Mark 10, 29, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or farms for my sake and for the gospel's sake, but that he shall receive a hundred times as much now in in the present age, um, house and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms, along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. So there it's even more clear. Two ages. Um... Then uh, let's uh, let's move to the the New Testament here, or at least the epistles, the pastoral epistles. One Timothy six seventeen, uh, Paul tells Timothy, instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. So the idea there again, implicit, is you've got this age and the age to come. Uh, store up riches for the age to come. Um, just kind of wanting to more than give you a proof text necessarily, I want to just show you how this sort of ev- this ethos pretty much runs uh, through Jesus' teaching and then certainly the epistles. I mean, there are honestly millions of texts we could look at here. But um, uh, maybe just uh, one more. Um, Luke 30, 20, uh, Luke 30, uh, Luke 20, 34. And Jesus said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain that age and the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they neither can die anymore, for they like, uh, are like angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. It's interesting. All of these texts, they have like little sub-issues that are quite interesting and difficult to, to work out. Um, and so maybe that gets in the way of just this basic truth that runs through all of them that you have Jesus saying, hey, in this age we marry and da-da-da, in the age to come, you know, we're like the angels and that sort of thing. Um, so again, you've got a clear... Um, deal there, this world and uh, eternity and, you know, time from the time we, the time from Jesus comes essentially uh, onwards. Um, what else? Maybe should we do one more? Um, well, Matthew twenty eight twenty, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. 
Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Um, so there we go. And this is the will of him who sent me, John 6 verse 39, that of all he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. Uh, the last day, of course, is uh, the day of um, Christ's coming and the first day of the age to come. Uh, and so basically what we're saying here is just we've constantly got this idea permeating the scripture of two ages, and that represents all of time. So hopefully that's clear enough, uh, more we could say. Now, where I'm going with this is you have the um, overlap of the ages that the Bible also talks about, which is... Um, you know, where this uh, hits the road for the Presbyterian thing. Um, and this is not a Baptist argument. Let me just be clear. And this is why it should appeal to everyone who's Reformed, because this is the basic eschatology. I mean, this is essentially an amillennial understanding of of the text, but it's it's more than that. It's, um, I mean, it's a premillennial understanding of the text as well in some ways. George Eldon Land was one of the biggest um, premillennial advocates and also one of the greatest scholars on the already not yet um, hermeneutic of the New Testament. So bottom line is this is quite a universal, universally held uh, reality and hermeneutic of the New, uh, of the New Testament. Um, and what we're saying, and everyone agrees that the, the, the age to come has broken in and is operative in this age. This is the whole significance of Pentecost, miracles, the whole deal. Um, Hebrews is huge on this because Hebrews is obviously, you know, the whole book is there to say, hey, stop stop reverting to the shadows. This very truth has happened. The the, the age to come is broken in. Um, so again, you got kind of a controversial pr- passage you could think about. Uh, Hebrews 6, 4 to 6. Uh, I'll leave aside my view on it now. Uh, but just again to, to highlight what he's saying, we've already mentioned Hebrews 12. Um, but in Hebrews 6, for in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have uh, been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, uh, there's the in breaking. I think that has to do with miracles and the apostolic witness, and then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance. Uh, since they again crucified uh, to themselves the Son of God and put Him to open shame. I strongly urge that that's the blasphemy of the Spirit. Um, same thing that Jesus said about the, the uh, that we read earlier about the Pharisees. Um, and so what you have, though, is that they're precisely in trouble because they have tasted the inbreaking of the powers to come. And, um, and then I've, I've read... Um, um, of course, Hebrews 12, uh, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. If any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, the new things have come. Uh, not to mention, you know, we could read Peter's um, uh, sermon at Pentecost, talking about what has happened there and um, so many things we could say. Um, again, I'm not really interested right now to break this down in the most systematic way possible. It's more just off the cuff. Um text for you to consider. But what, I, what I'm wanting to do is just give you the concept here. Um, and look, if you want to look into that, I couldn't. Rec- I recommend uh, The End Times Made Simple by Samuel Waldron, uh, A Reformed Baptist Manifesto by Richard Barcellus and Samuel Waldron. Those are all good. For um, There's um, George Eldon Ladd, already not yet um, principal. You could go to um, uh, Anthony Hooker, a reform guy, to see the same thing, the Bible in the future. Uh you know, almost no end of resources there to look at. But um, um, 
why this is important is that if that is true, then as much as we would want to argue, <clears throat> and this is essentially Sam Aldrin's argument in Reformed Baptist Manifesto, he's saying, you know, if it's true that uh, the author of Hebrews is saying, listen, the, the church, when it assembles, is now foretasting heavenly Jerusalem, not earthly Jerusalem, and that's the whole point of the epistle, to structure the church on the realities of earthly Jerusalem, which was typological, and not to structure it on the realities of heavenly Jerusalem is crazy. So even if Jeremiah is talking about heaven, we structure it on heaven because heaven is what we're foretasting. To, to acknowledge that the, the age has now come and dawn, and that's not to say we're in heaven already. No one's thinking, you know, deluding themselves in that regard. But we're saying to continue to structure the church on uh, the basis of its typology rather than its fulfillment is essentially to ignore the reality that the author of Hebrews is talking about, that Pentecost has come, that Christ is risen, that uh, the age has crashed in. Um, to go ahead and include unbelie- uh, sorry, unbelievers in the, um, in the church um, uh, just because there were unbelievers in the people of Israel and its national grouping so as to, provide, you know, as to create a lineage for the Messiah is crazy. Because the whole thing is that the Messiah has now come. The seed has been born. And now those who look to him like Abraham are justified by faith. I mean, you know, there is no now no physical offspring, but only a spiritual offspring. It's, it's honestly so resonant with the entire point of the fulfillment. So to no one's saying you have to go, hey, you have to be elect before you're in the church. Um, obviously, no one can do that. In fact, Jesus warns of that in uh, the parable of the wheat and tares. Uh, that's hyper-Calvinism, that's craziness. Um, but what you do have to do is at least uh, demand that the covenant sign receive some sort of evidence of um, of having, uh, or at least some sort of uh, evidence in the life of the person uh, before themselves receiving that sign. So what we're talking about there is simply a credible profession of faith. Uh, how can there be any assurance that the promises of the gospel fall upon that person without them even bothering to uh, have considered who Jesus is. I mean, it's just not true. The whole theology of the New Testament bears that out, Um, let alone uh, the whole story of the Bible. I mean, this is, it was true, again, that you could be in the covenant as an unbeliever. And even if you had disobeyed your father and, you know, you were just... Or what I, what I mean there is just you weren't interested in the gospel and you were just going about nominal sort of adherence to Israel's faith, um, you would still have a physical blessing by being part of a physical people because God was doing something to bring about uh, this great big type and shadow and, of course, doing something in propagating a people so that Christ would indeed come forth from Israel. Um, he's That's not happening anymore. Uh, now I'm... I realize I'm kind of beating a dead drum here, but uh, you know, th- I just want to make sure that I'm making myself clear uh, on that point. So basically what I'm saying is, uh, great argument by Richard Pratt, one of the best on Jeremiah, but it's almost like the harder he argues, the more he's going to convince me of Baptist theology, even though he wants to convince me of Presbyterian theology. And the reason is he has not included the already not yet dynamic. If he shows me that it's talking about the not yet, I'm just going to get more convinced that that's how we need to model the church. Even though we're not that, uh, we're, we're not completely there yet, 
the whole, I mean, shesh, we could, I mean, you are seated in heavenly places in Christ. Um, we could just go to any part of any sort of pastoral epistle and talk about the way the church is viewed. Uh, and we just simply have to ask the question, is it viewed in light of, um, you know, uh, old Israel or in light of true Israel? And if it's, if it's viewed in light of true Israel, the remnant, then, you know, that means there is no more to talk about. Uh, we, we know what we have to do with baptism. I love Jeremiah. I think it's a great linchpin text. I've said that already. Um, but I would just, inc- it's honestly, if you know, I would probably, it's the thing that locks me on baptism. I've just recently had an opportunity to work through that with uh, a few people. And um, it's just reminded me of how important it is um, to get that text right. Uh, if you're waging through that debate, let me encourage you to to really give give attention to the exegesis. You know, take the text seriously. You're not gonna you're gonna constantly be beating your head, you know, and uh, going to and fro until you actually you know nut down and 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 read the text carefully, and then um, you know try and take these lofty ideas and root them down the individual passages. I think personally, from the ones we've read. This morning, especially Jeremiah. If you just read Jeremiah 31 and then the book of Hebrews, um, I don't know. If the, it's just not possible for me to come out with any other um, interpretation of or understanding unless I've missed something, you know. And I'm I'm still waiting. I will I will flip, man. I will flip. I'm a loose cannon when it comes to this stuff. I will flip to Presbyterian so quickly if someone can show me uh, what's going on there that I've missed, but uh, ain't happening. I feel pretty pretty confident of that. So, and I think that's the approach we all need to take, you know. I will, I've got a 1689 tattoo. Um, dude, I'll just get Westminster on the other arm, you know what I mean? <laughs> no, just kidding. Um, relax, Reformed Baptist. I'm not going anywhere, you know. Uh, just trying to keep everyone on their toes. All right. Bless you guys. There we go. 1689 Saturday, and uh, it's Sunday tomorrow, right? So don't even pretend to be a sojourner if you haven't got very certain plans to go to church. If you're in town, come to GraceNet. If you're in some part of the world that um, uh, means you're too far from us, get to a good church. Go find a good church. Make it. If you don't know where a good church is, start the hunt. You know, get serious about it. Church is where it's at. Just the author of Hebrews. No point in debating baptism when you're missing his point. He's like, dude, don't not go to church, right? Do not um, refrain from gathering. Uh, this is this is massive. We come together as the eschatological people of God. Uh, this is this is it. It's the action. So go to church. All right, that's me. Mm-hmm.